Welcome to 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness with your host, Dr. Rob Bell. Dr. Rob interviews expert coaches, executives, and athletes about mental toughness and their hinge moments. The hinge. It connects who we are with who we've become, and it only takes one. And now for your host, Dr. Rob. Really where I was wasn't great riding. So I found a loop in the hotel out the back, up the main drag, two miles, 10 laps, 20 miles. I could do 20 miles every day before the meeting. I was doing pretty well. And on that morning of July 11th, I came around to Ben around the fourth lap. And that SUV that you referenced in the opening was coming right at me. And I looked at him. I thought he looked at me. I was like, he's going to see me. It was so surreal. I was like, what's he doing there? I was like, he's going to move. He's going to move. He's going to swerve to avoid me. And he never did. He was just going too fast. The police estimate that he was going about 40 miles an hour. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. If you want a free ebook, the best mental toughness quotes that will make you better, just text Dr. Rob Bell, that's D-R-R-O-B-B-E-L-L, to this number. 33444. You'll get a download right away. So our guest today, his hinge moment was that he was hit head on by an SUV while biking in New Mexico. See, our guest today was a, a big cyclist, had a race coming up, so it actually took his bike out to Mexico for a conference and then was hit head on in the early morning hours. You uh, you heard that right. So if there's a better way to start the podcast, I'm not sure what it is. But this hinge moment led our guests to his last bad day initiative in Peloton coaching, which we'll get into today. Uh, his book, which I just finished up, is called Shift, Creating Better Tomorrows, Winning at Work and in Life. And his mission is how to prevent bad moments from turning into bad days. Our guest is an author, speaker, and coach. And um, it is uh, Michael O'Brien. Michael, thank you so much for joining us, man. Rob, thanks for having me on. I can't wait to get into it. And certainly that moment was a hinge moment, almost like the door flew off the hinges kind of moment. So, um, yeah, I'm looking so, forward to our conversation. So let's have fun uh, storming the castle, right? Absolutely. Yeah, good it was reference. good. Well, start us out with that story, man. So you're, you're a healthy individual. I mean, you have a corporate lifestyle. You got two kids, two daughters, very young. And then walk us through, walk us through that moment. Yeah, so I was training to get back into bike racing. My youngest was seven months old, took some time off from racing. My oldest was three and a half. We had a company meeting when we used to do those before Corona. So we would go off and we flew out on Monday, fly back on Friday. And there was a half a day of leisure. And I wanted to cross New Mexico off the state separate in my bike. So I said, hey, why not? Let's bring the bike out. Let's train. I got this race coming up. It was the first race back. It was a local thing, sort of a big deal. And I mapped out a pretty good course. When I got there, the hotel, the resort was in the middle of nowhere in New Mexico. So it was in between Albuquerque and Santa Fe. And I thought I was going to get some really great riding in, but really where I was wasn't great riding. So I found a loop in the hotel out the back, up the main drag, two miles, 10 laps, 20 miles. I thought I could do 20 miles every day before the meeting. I was doing pretty well. 
And on that morning of July 11th, I came around to Ben around the fourth lap. And that SUV that you referenced in the opening was coming right at me. And I looked at him. I thought he looked at me. I was like, he's going to see me. It was so surreal. I was like, what's he doing there? I was like, he's going to move. He's going to move. He's going to swerve to avoid me. And he never did. He was just going too fast. The police estimate that he was going about 40 miles an hour based on the tire mark I left when he hit me. So it was like the skid mark. And Rob, I remember everything about that morning, like the sound of me hitting his front grill, the thought, the crash I made into his windshield. You saw the windshield in the photos in the book and the screech of the brakes and then like coming to the asphalt below. And that, of course, knocked me unconscious. I regained consciousness. I was surrounded by EMTs, fire, ambulance, police, you name it. And my reality had shifted in a moment. It was a, it was a hinge. And I asked the question that only another cyclist can truly appreciate. I asked the EMTs, like, hey, how's my bike? Right. Because I was doing everything and anything to sort of not buy into what was happening to me. I was trying to cut the tension of the moment with a little humor. And they're like, your bike's fine. It wasn't. It was totally totaled. They're like, try to fixate on you, focus on you, try to breathe. And the way they said it, just the energy of the scene, I, I knew my life was in in question, it was in the balance. And I just remember trying to will myself to stay awake. I thought if I could stay awake, I could control the situation as crazy as that sounds. And then when they put me on the medevac to take me to Albuquerque, I made a commitment to myself that if I live, because I knew that was in question, that I would stop chasing happiness. Because before my accident, even though I had a good life, it looked all good. I was chasing happiness. I thought I'd be happy when fill in the blank. And I was pouring a whole bunch of my stress inside. I didn't know how to release it. I was being packed down, packed down, packed down. And then eventually that SUV knocked the stuffing out of me. And that moment was the moment that would change every other moment from here on out. Hey, this is Dr. Rob Bell. Our new book, Puke and Rally. It's not about the setback, it's about the comeback. It can be bought anywhere books are sold, or go to the website, pukeandrallybook.com. And so your rehab was really significant, and, and you developed a relationship with your doctor that was out there, and even the PT. Um, I guess the question I wanted to ask on this one was, what was the most significant piece of like that initial rehab when you're out in New Mexico before you came back to New York? What, what's that one piece that you really remember? Well, there was a big part of denial at first um, that it didn't happen. You know, I was just arguing with reality. The doctors painted this picture of, hey, you know what? You're going to have a tough road ahead, you know, based on your injuries. Because besides breaking a whole bunch of stuff, the left femur shattered and lacerated the femoral artery. And so they said, listen, you're probably going to walk with some complications. You're probably never going to ride again. And in in that spirit, they sort of pointed my eyes to like sort of a gloomy direction. And I had this optimism that, you know, I, I couldn't shake, you know, I was like, I, I can get better. But then they told me about this and I went dark and angry and even, even revengeful. So that moment definitely stuck, sticks out in my memory. I also remember like one of my PTs uh, who was, she did burn, burn victim PT. And 
like I had these fasciotomies they cut because I lost so much blood. I need so much blood plot. Like I, I ballooned up like the Michelin man. So they cut these fasciotomies, which is basically an incision from my groin and my left leg all the way down to my ankle. And then one on the outside of my left calf and allows the, the, the skin, the leg to swell. So you don't have compression uh, syndrome. And so these are open wounds and they needed to be dressed and cleaned every day. And it was some of the worst pain I experienced, like going, like I had to pre-medicate to go through that. And she took unbelievable care in that. She was like, she moved slowly. She was my advocate. She even went back in the day, Krispy Kreme was sweeping the nation and she went to Krispy Kreme because one had opened in Albuquerque. There was a three hour wait for those donuts. And so she uh, stood in line and bought donuts, you know, for her staff, but she saved some for me. And that was like the only thing I could really stomach because the food didn't taste good because I was on all these meds. But I just remember like here I was a complete stranger to her and she was showing up with this unbelievable amount of love. And everyone on that morning, they showed up. Like, you know, you go to work as EMTs, you don't know what to expect, but you have to, you have to show up the right way. If they don't show up the way they show up, I may not be here. We may not be having this conversation. I may not be in the health that I am today if I did survive. So here they are, they don't know what to expect. They go in, they show up for complete strangers. And they do this amazing work. And I think sometimes we forget that with our healthcare professionals. Like they really, sometimes they don't know us just like she didn't know me, but man, she just brought the love. Like, and that warmth and that care, I, you know, it was one time in the early stages where I didn't feel alone. And I felt alone several times during those initial phases. Cause you're just alone in the hospital and you have a lot of time to think. And she, Help me feel like, okay, you're not alone, Michael. Like, we're going to get through this together. And it just sort of speaks to the power of, like, togetherness as we get through our tough moments in time. Yeah. You uh, wrote in your book, and the part we keep getting back to is that, look, there was no spinal cord injury. There was no uh, cerebral damage other than that was done before the bike accident. Yeah, there was significant cerebral damage before the bike accident. Yeah. But, you know, when did you, when were you able to come to that shift of, and, and to use your parlance there, but when were you able to make that shift from, um, and, and you kind of wrote in the book, from being upset or even wishing that your leg was cut off because of all the surgeries, because of all the complications that you had, to uh, focusing on that gratitude and perspective? When, when did that really take hold? That started, the, the spark of it started when they flew me back to New Jersey. That's where I live today. And that's where I was living at the time. So I went to one hospital for my skin graft operations. And then I went to a rehab hospital for an extended period of time. And I had a moment during rehab where I was just looking around the room and I, I saw, you know, some people getting better and other people not. And I was, I wasn't making the progress that I wanted to make. And there was a little bit of the mask I would wear, like, yeah, we're all good on the outside, but like stressed on the inside or, hey, we're all good on the outside, but we got some insecurities and self-doubt and all that stuff, that conversation that we have with ourselves that we don't want to talk to anyone about. So I was having that. I wasn't making 
the progress I wanted to make. And I wonder like what was helping these people progress? And the conclusion I made without any data whatsoever, it was all about mindset. And I knew enough as an athlete that mindset matters, but I wasn't necessarily tapping into it during my recovery initially. Also around that same moment, I had a mentor who called and I was having a low moment and I was griping and I was playing the victim, which everyone validated. They're like, you've been through something horrific, totally get it. Like you have every right to be angry. You're lucky to be alive. But he said, you know, um, hey, all the events in your life are neutral until you label them. And I was like, huh? Like what? He's like, yeah, all the events in your life are neutral until you label them. You get to choose your labels. You get to give things meaning. So in between the time that something happens and your label, there's a space. Right now you've chosen to label this as you're the victim, what was you, and you have every right to feel that way. But I wanna challenge you to see things a little bit differently, that maybe this is a moment to step into being resilient and finding a greater, greater purpose and trying to figure out like, why did you survive? Because the doctors told my wife, we're really not sure how he survived. If he was 10 years old or not in shape, certainly he would have died before he got to the hospital. So he was like, there's a reason you lived. You get to give that meaning. Why do you think you lived? And so it was the combination of like all these things who are coming together. I was like, okay, you know what? I still have some things in my life, like namely my wife and my two daughters. And then that whole concept, Rob, as far as like neutrality, I was like, well, if everything is neutral until I label it, I'm going to go back and relabel that day, July 11th, as my last bad day. And for me, it's the last bad day is not unicorns and rainbows and an endless supply of Skittles. It's more about that day that changes every other day where you decide to write a new script. It's your hinge moment. So that's your last bad day, like going forward. And it's also not about repressing our emotions or restricting them. I still have plenty of bad moments, but I don't want to give a bad moment any more fuel than it deserves. And it turns into a bad day because the way I look at it, if I can hit the pillow every night and my wife and daughters are still in my life, how can I say that's a bad day? Like it goes back to gratitude. Like there are multiple things in my life every day, all of our lives. Even when we go through something really tough, like 20, that we can be grateful for and say, okay, I've had some bad moments. I've had some challenging moments, sad moments, frustrating, you name it. But at the end of the day, I still have some building blocks to create a better tomorrow. So I'm not going to label the whole day as a bad day. I could label the whole day as like, well, it's a complex or complicated day, but I got some mojo there to help me create a better tomorrow. And that, that, that was the start of my orientation shift. It wasn't linear. It wasn't smooth. I had some good, you know, good moments doing that. And then I had some times where I was like, Ooh, you know, you know, go directly to jail. Don't pass go. Don't collect your $200. Right. Um, so I had a, a whole bunch of that. So my progression, again, not linear, and it wasn't by myself. Like the only reason I'm here is because I had so many people around me. Like we get through our tough things together. It's hard to get through them just by ourselves. And I'm so thankful that so many people came to my support during what was the lowest point in my life. Yeah. Being being in those rooms with the other patients that, that were all suffering from different uh, issues, what did you see about those that got better, man? They had a optimism that 
the work that they were putting in right now was going to pay off. It wasn't over the long haul. It wasn't transactional. It wasn't, I'm going to do this now and I'm going to get better right away. Um, they embraced sort of the suck as the Navy SEALs talk about it. Like the moment was difficult for all of us. So we're all in rehab and we're all going through our form of pain. You know, I would take, I would pop a couple Percocets before I would do my rehab sessions because the pain was so intense. So I had to pre-medicate about a half an hour before. And there were, I wasn't the only one that had, that had to do that. So we were all going through some level of pain and suffering. We were all in the mud, like the whole concept that no mud, no lotus, like the lotus flower, yeah. as beautiful as it is, has to grow through all the muck and the mud. But the people that were getting better were like, okay, I'm going to embrace this suck and I'm going to play the long game. And for me, at that moment in time, I wasn't playing the long game. I just wanted to get out of it. I just wanted it. I wanted this to be over, like, because I was still arguing a little bit with reality. Like this didn't happen. It's going through the grief cycle, the denial and the, the bargaining, like this didn't happen. And the reality, Hey, when you argue with reality, it always wins. Like reality, God, mother nature, and the universe. If you think you're all that, all that in a bag of chips and you're up by five going into the bottom of the ninth, they're the home team and they're up to bat and they always get on base and they always score. So I was arguing with like all four of those things, depending on where you come from, right? And I was losing every time. I, part of it was accepting reality. Like, hey, Michael, it's like this. You had a near-death cycling accident. You've been badly hurt. Accept that. So then you can take the action to get better. And so when I was looking at those other folks, they had greater they had greater awareness, yes, but they also had greater acceptance for, hey, it's like this. I didn't want to be here, but it's like this. I'm here, and now I'm going to put in the work, and I'm going to play the long game. In your book, you talk about that difference between awareness and acceptance. Can you just delve a little bit further into that and that, that mind shift there from awareness to acceptance? Yeah. So awareness to me is, one, there's a self-awareness and there's also just social awareness. They also happen to form two of the building blocks for emotional intelligence. I think back then, you know, back then we didn't have social media and we didn't have smartphones, but we had Blackberries. So I wasn't like scrolling, but I was like doing brick breaker back in the day. We're so busy with like our work. We're scrolling our way, our lives, or we're just head down on the hamster wheel. And we don't have much awareness as to like, who are we? Like know thyself first. Like what gets us triggered? What makes us happy? What are our values? Do we have a vision for the future? Um, what kind of impact do we want to make? Like know thyself, look in the mirror, inner work, all that stuff. I think this year is a moment to do some of that stuff because it's been one heck of a year. Like what do we want to, who do we want to be coming out of all this? And so growing up, I had a script of what it meant to be a man and be a provider and what career was. And I was like, okay, head down and you just work your way up the corporate ladder. But I wasn't do, doing it with much of, I wasn't conscious, consciously choosing things. So it was just on autopilot. So awareness is like being, yeah, fully aware of like what's around us, who we are in this moment, and even what we're feeling. I think if this moment teaches us anything, it's feel what we need to feel so we can handle what we need to handle. And 
make sure we're handling our emotions fully. We're just not trying to restrict them or repress them because if we repress them for too long, they, they will bottle up and eventually come out. Sort of like putting rocks in your backpack. Eventually the backpack gets too heavy to carry. So awareness is around like who we are and then also tuning into those around you. So it's awareness for life. Acceptance is not, for me, it's not about tolerance. It's not about accepting less. It's not, hey, it is what it is. Because that, to me, it sounds a little bit of that victim mentality coming back up into view. Acceptance to me is like accepting what is. Hey, it's like this. So take 2020. It's like, hey, it's like this. There's a global pandemic. There, you know, there are things we can all do. But we don't have to like it. Acceptance isn't about, oh, I love this. It's about, hey, this is where we're at. As opposed to those early stages of grief, of denial, it's not happening, or bargaining, trying to get a way out of it. The last stage of the, the grief process, the grieving process, is acceptance. To say, hey, we had some pain, we had some suffering, we had some loss. I had all that with my accident, so hey, it's like this, Michael. And then from there, there's a space to say, okay, now, what do you want to do next? What's one small pedal stroke, to use a cycling analogy, that you want to take? Like, let's try to make small steps, small steps over time, and string those together. And then all of a sudden, you get some momentum, and you can have a great week, you can have a productive month, and you can look back over a course of a year and say, wow, I've made a lot of progress. And for me, that was a big moment. Like, that awareness piece, acceptance, and then finally into some small action, work hard today to create a better tomorrow. That's more of a long haul thing for me. You're, you're going to need another surgery. And this is when you're back in New York and, and there was a risk to it. And so then the doctor asked, you know, how bad do you want to get back on that bike or something like that? And, and you discussed like in the book, you said you never really fully tapped in your potential. Um, Discuss that part for us and, and what, what that meant, how you were able to reflect on that and how that made the decision um, moving forward. Yeah, so there's a big part of my like early days before the accident where I never really thought I was enough. I thought I had to do more to be more. And that sort of led to the chasing of of happiness. And I think there's a lot of people current day that feel that way. Like I got to do more to be more. I got to have like on social, it's like more likes, more shares, more followers. Like once I get to this level, then I've made it, then I am something, or it could be your career or external merit badges. Like I just didn't feel like I was fully enough. So I was always chasing, but in some ways, I think the reason why I, I said that I didn't fully tap into my potential. So I had that going on and also had a little bit of fear of success. We, we talk a lot about fear of failure. Like I, I don't want to fail, like, you know, like the whole thing. I, I think I suffered from a fear of success that if I put in my full potential, then I do get to that next level. And at the next level, it gets a little bit more complicated, it gets a little bit more complex. And will I be able to perform at that level? So fear of success is just like one step removed from fear of failure because you, like, you get there and then you're like, oh, well, now I'm here. Like, I don't want to lose it. So it was this like weird, weird stew for me, which I, I don't think is unique. You know, I think a lot of people also deal with it. And 
I think for even for my sport, you know, I think I had greater potential as a cyclist that if I just push past that resistance of like getting through that muck, I could have gotten to the next level and probably have had some great success, but there was always something like holding me back. I'd make up reasons like, oh, I was a little scared. I don't like to like go down hills fast and just like all that stuff. But all that stuff can be taught and learned, you know, looking at just cycling as one example. So I felt like yeah, I just sort of played it. I played it safe. So here, here I am on one hand thinking I had to continue these things that I'm not enough. I have to do more to be more. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm playing it safe. So it was like, I had this accelerator and then stop, you know, hit the brake accelerator, then pause, accelerator, then pause. And it makes for a very herky jerky ride. If you've ever driven <laughs> with anyone that drives that way. And, you know, when that, when it came to that surgery, there were a lot of risks. You know, he asked me, you know, listen, if I cut that bypass graph of yours and we need to amputate your knee, which would your leg above the knee, I'm not waking you up from anesthesia. We're doing it right then and there. And I was like, yeah, I understand. I'm fully, I'm on board because I knew that surgery, there was a lot of risks, obviously I just referenced, but I knew that surgery was sort of trying to tap into my potential so I could get the motion back in my leg, the flexion and the extension. So I was willing to take that risk. And it was, I was sort of at peace in a lot of ways with the decision. I'm like, okay, we did the surgery. I woke up, you know, in recovery and I looked down over my blanket. I was like, do I have 10 toes? And I saw 10 toes. And I was like, all right, cool. And then he came in and he told me that the surgery was a, a huge success that I got. He got the flexion on the table, which was key, 120 degrees. He goes, now the hard work is you have to keep it. Like now it's rehab. So I got your flexion under like major anesthesia. So they cranked on my leg, but they're like, now you got to go to work and keep as much of that as possible. That's going to determine your level of function going forward. I love it, man. You know, in, you discuss about lifestyle rot. You speak about living uh, society script, that, that that's what we do. Delve into a little bit further, Michael, the do have be mentality and how that switched for you into, you know, be do have. Yeah. So I this is one of, like, one of my favorites because for some of your listeners, Rob, they'll remember the name Zig Ziglar. So, you know, if, if Zig Ziglar was around now with social media, he'd be like, you know, he's the guy that, you know, Tony Robbins learned from and like, all, he would be like this Uber guy, he'd be like, I don't know, doing lives and a whole bunch of stuff on Facebook or wherever, right? Well, I listened to Zig as a early rap. I would put the cassette, his cassette tapes in my car, in my Ford Taurus, and he just had this cadence to his voice and, you know, his Southern draw and draw and he just, I would just like be like, yeah, I would, I would like eat it up. Now, keep in mind, I was eating it up, but I wasn't applying it in a lot of ways, you know? So he would talk about living a do have be lifestyle. So the do is hustle and grind 24 seven, chase happiness, be more to do more, all the stuff that current day we deal with. So you can have all those external merit patches, which I suffered from before my accident. Hey, I'll be happy when I buy that cool car. 
I'll be happy when I get that bigger house. I'll be happy when I get promoted. All those external merit badges that we think are the definitions of happiness. Like if I only had that, or I got to get this phone or that, this, or this outfit or, you know, whatever. And then, so you do to have that stuff. And then as he goes on says, then you can be happy. That's the myth that you tell yourself. So once you get all that stuff, your kids go off to the right colleges, then eventually you can be happy, but you might catch some of that, but then it flies away like any vapor finish line and you're back to chasing. I was like, Oh yeah. And it really became crystal clear to me that I was doing that when I was in the hospital. Cause I had so much time to think about it. Well, the way I flipped the script, much like Zig did, is like, and so instead of do have be, it was be do have. So I was going to be intentional about how I tuned into the world. So every morning I'd get out of the, my bed into my wheelchair and scoop myself into a quiet place in the hospital, which is difficult to find. And I would just get quiet. Like I knew nothing about meditation, but I just knew I had to quiet my mind to get my body right. And I was like, okay, how do you want to, how do you want to greet the world today, Michael? Like, how do you want to be today? And so I started there. That was my framing. And I still do it to this day. It's an exercise I do each morning. All right, how do you wish to be today? And then the next question is, what do you wish to do? So I'm going to do the things that happy people do, or I'm going to do the things that leaders do, or I'm going to do the things that successful people do, or I'm going to do the things that resilient people do. And I'm going to get really focused on that, like the how and the what. That's part of the do. And then as a result, you, at the end of the day, you have more of it. So if you show up with intention, like today, I choose to be happy. I'm going to do things that happy people do. Usually, you get more happiness at the end of the day. And once I sort of had that big aha and started my ritual in the hospital, I've, I've lived that. And it's such a healthier way of living. I still get a whole bunch of stuff done, but I start from a place of like, how do I wish to tune in and show up in the world as opposed to always chasing? Because always chasing is a really difficult place to be. Like you're never fully there. It's also stressful and that stress has its toll on our bodies. We don't think about it because it's sort of like the normal but it's not normal. That stress, that heightened fight, flight, freeze, biological response that we all have when we don't think we have enough, we're in this constant state of stress. That's one of the reasons why we don't have the health that we do in this country, I believe. It puts our body in a state of inflammation and that's the portal to many, many diseases. And I say that as a former executive in healthcare. So shifting that around and flipping the script is such a healthier, more peaceful way of living. And you still can get a whole bunch of stuff done. Uh, you know, I credit my recovery and that sort of shift in attitude in helping me get to the executive suite. I don't think I get there if I don't change my approach, if I don't find a new script, because I probably would have been miserable on the way, on the way there climbing up the corporate ladder if you will so how do people you know and, and with your coaching peloton coaching so i mean we've got a lot of athletes that listen to this mostly i mean um with cyclists and they get this i don't know how many cyclists actually listen to it but peloton i mean it's easier to ride in the group than it is by yourself and i know we probably got a lot of tour de france 
fans in here or X fans, but um, with, with your Peloton coaching, how do you help people make that shift from, you know, chasing as opposed to, to starting being first? Yeah, that's a great question, Rob. Yeah. So there probably was a whole bunch of like Tour de France fans before all the doping scandals. So like, you know, so with um, my company is like drug free, so there's no doping. So for those, I'll take a step back. For those that don't know what a Peloton is, it is the group of cyclists in a bike race like the Tour de France. And even though they're on different teams, they all need each other to go down the road as fast and as safe as possible. Sort of this whole better together concept. And when I was in the hospital, I had my whole medical team around me because I had a complication and they were doing rounds. And I, after they left, I went to my wife. I'm like, they're like my medical Peloton. She's like, yeah, they sure are, you know? And I was like, oh, cool. And then I wrote it down. I go, that's a good name for a company. And then, of course, Peloton Spin Bikes came out, like, several years later with, like, more attractive models and a bigger ad budget. So a lot of people say, are you the same company, which I'm not, but we use the same concept. So for me, it starts with discovery, you know, for my clients, just, you know, to help them flip their script or change their script or stop chasing happiness. So the discovery piece of it is like, like, who are you? You know, we, we don't really go through life asking these questions. We sort of just go through life. So what are the values that you cherish that you wish to honor? I think that's important to tune into at multiple phases in your life. Uh, what's your vision for the future? What triggers you and why? Uh, what's that conversation that you're having with yourself? Because I believe that nothing truly happens without conversation. And the most important conversation we have every day multiple times a day is the one that we have with ourselves. So what is all that like? So we dive deep on sort of the discovery piece of it. And then we tend to map out, okay, well, what kind of life do you want? What kind of success do you want in your sport or your career, or your health in your life? And then we start executing that game plan. But it starts with, hey, let's spend some time just figuring out like who you are. Ideally, I want to help them avoid their version of an SUV. Like I went through it because of the SUV in my last bad day. Had it not been for that, I probably would not have gone through that exercise. You know, you can go through it in some ways in corporate workshops, but they don't go deep enough. Having a coach, and you know this, having a coach in the trenches with you, you can go deeper on some of that stuff that truly matters and you can have more breakthroughs. And with more breakthroughs, you can go to a spot where you can take better action. Where do you see that most people get tripped up in this coaching cycle and this achievement, you know, uh, race that we kind of talk about? Where do most people get tripped up? Not being able to shift the conversation that they're having with themselves. Someone asked me this a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Hey, Michael, what does it all sort of come down to? And I'm like, it's, it's what we tell ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's all the stuff in our head. You, you know this from all your sports, you know. It's the yips on the golf course. It's we don't, tell, we don't we don't mention that on this podcast. Yeah, I know. We don't use that so word. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, Michael. So, so it's you know it's choking on the you know foul line. It's it's all the stuff that we tell ourselves that we don't want anyone to know that we're telling ourselves. But ultimately, I think it comes down to like how do we see ourselves? And until that conversation gets healthier, now I'm not saying that you should eliminate doubt and fear and all that jazz. I think those are natural reactions to life. 
as humans. We are hardwired for safety and security and also belonging, right? So we want to be safe. As creatures, we want to be safe. So when we see something out there that makes us feel unsafe where the pressure is on, it's natural to have some doubt. What we don't have to like fall, you know, into is believing it. Like we can have awareness, okay, in these moments, I might get triggered. I might have that moment of doubt. How do I wish to shift out of it into the type of action I want to take? So for me, yeah, it's all about, it's all about up here. You know, a lot of people write about it. Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, writes about it in terms of the resistance. But it's all the same. Doubt, imposter syndrome, fear of fear of failure, you know, fear of uh, failure, fear of success, all that. It's all up here. We got enough wisdom out there. We know what to do. We can develop skill. So all the pros out there, they got skill. What separates one from another? I think it's mindset. You know, I think it's the conversation that they're telling themselves. We got to be a good storyteller, right? You got to be a good storyteller. And you got to, the the one you one story you got to tell yourself is a healthy one. That, like, even though this moment's tough, you got this. Like, you you put in the time. You got the, you got the game. You got the skills. You got the chops to do this. Now it's time, you know, pause, breathe, and reflect, and lean into it, and perform. But we, we psych ourselves out so, so many times. And I see it happening in sport. I see it happening in conference rooms and where we, we just don't lean into the moment like we can because we're, we're scared. And again, perfectly normal to be there. It's a human experience. So I just want people to dance with it differently. I think um, back to when I fell off an 80 foot cliff and you and I both have a, I was uh, leading a pretty wild lifestyle. You were leading a healthy lifestyle. So yours is a little <laughs> bit different and you're a little bit uh, my senior at that time. But when I look back on it, it gave me um, a dose of perspective that other people couldn't have. So I kind of looked at it as like, you know, I, I, in a lot of ways I was really the fortunate one, not only because I came out and was still alive, but to experience real pain and then to experience real gratitude. Um, how do we, how do we go through having the right kind of perspective in life and, and noticing that, you know, any kind of failure that we have, that it is going to be a bruise, it's not a tattoo, but that, um, how do we develop that perspective and, and that gratitude? What a great question. I get asked this a lot because I know, for your moment, Rob, you know, it's like, it was a hinge, right? So it's like, you wake up and, and I'm not sure about you, but I know I've been asked this. People ask like, well, if you could do it all over again and it never happened to you, would, would you wish for it to never happened, have happened? And I said, no, no, no. Like, no. I'm like, I'm like, bring it on. Like, you know, my wife may give you a different answer, but for me, it's like, no, no, no. I like, this shaped me who into who I am. And so then people ask, well, do you have to go through something like you went through in order to like wake up? And I'm like, no, 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 you don't have to. But I do think if you develop more awareness as far as where you are, going back to the early part of our conversation, and maybe taking stories like yourself or 
other guests that you have on your show that are so inspirational for my story and be like, all right, well, there's some, some similarities to how I'm living my life right now to how they were living their life before their hinge moment. Maybe this is my wake up call. Maybe, you know, maybe it's time for me to be the student, like going back to that old saying, like when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, I think we have teachers each and every day through podcasts like yours, through books, through videos, through a whole bunch of means. And so are we paying attention to the things that matter most, the people in our life and how we're living our life? And so when we tune into that, then we can see a lot of teachers around us to say, hey, you know what? The path you're on, probably not a good path. And now is it now's your chance to have your last bad day moment, your hinge moment, and course correct. Because right now you have the ability to make small, subtle changes to get back on the right track or a different path. And you don't have to go through something monumental that you and I went through. So I'd rather have people make small adjustments than having to go through the pain of a major wholesale transformation. Yeah. Um, so I, I do think it's possible. I think it's taking all the, gosh, think about how many motivational speakers people have heard at, at meetings or conferences or big events or like the ESPYs, right? So, you know, like, and we play for ESPN, they, they play the ESPYs all the time. And there's always some motivational talk, like Jimmy V, right? Jimmy V, they, because obviously it's supporting his foundation. But he talks about perseverance and never giving up and like, and we get into that moment, we're like in the moment, we will replay it, like never give up, you know, never give up. And we cry and we get emotional. And then we don't do anything with it. Like, for me, that is, that is, the, that's the waste. It's like, because there's so many wonderful teachers right in front of us to say, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm in front of you. I'm on the stage. You know, with Jimmy V, who was in the last days of his life from his battle with cancer. And he's like, he's pleading to the audience, like, wake up. Like, live your life. Don't give up on life, even when it's hard. And we don't necessarily take full advantage of that moment. So, okay, that's a wake-up call. That's a teaching moment. How do I want to apply it to my life? And your story and my story, again, the stories you have on your show, like these are all moments to say, all right, I listen to that podcast. You know what? Instead of having it be a transaction that I just cross it off, I listen to this week's episode, I want to do something different now. I'm going to make some small changes so I don't have to get to that point. Yeah. It's righteous, man. Because Jimmy V, I mean, if you talk about mindset, I mean, there was a dude that knew what the vision was going to be and, and belief that he got to his players, man. So, yeah. Let me ask you um, one more question, Michael. Yeah. What question should I be asking that, that I'm not asking? That's a great one. So I would say this, you know, as her goes back to something I mentioned earlier, you know, more of like the how, you know, and sort of like, well, you know, how do, how do we make all this happen? Right. And we've talked about in the past too, is this whole concept of by going slow, sometimes we go faster. And for me, when I referenced, like I had to quiet my mind in order to heal my body. 
and there are some other people out there that also talk about this, like not allowing the environment to shape their thinking, but their thinking to shape the environment and getting your mind right. So if we can worry ourselves sick, as we do current day, and we've been doing over the last several decades, worrying ourselves sick in this country, is it possible to think ourselves well? And like, how do we do that? And I do believe, even though we're all hard charging, we all are, you know, still some chasing happiness, but we just, you know, we want to make progress. We want to come out with innovations. I think some of the best, one of the best things we can do is, is to hit the pause button and reconnect with our breath and reflect on this moment. What are we grateful for? What do we want to say and do next? What are our intentions? How do we want to frame the day? How do we look at the moment and think, is this happening to me or for me or through me? What is it? So I think our ability to slow down will help us get, help us go faster. I think our breath, it's a tool that we all have, will be like the new thing in 2021. And I'm not talking about like meditation because that's been popular for a while and it grows in popularity, but just the whole concept of like, you're at your desk, you're not in a meditated state, you know, because a lot of people will meditate for 10, 20 minutes in the morning. And then the rest of the day, it's like helter skelter, right? They, they don't take the practice off the mat and weave it into their lives. What I'm talking about is weaving the connection to your breath throughout your life. You come back to it to slow down so you can be more thoughtful and more responsive and less reactive. So you can make better connections, not only with yourself, but those around you. Because right now, what we're facing is huge. And the only way we're going to get through it is that we have to do it together. Yeah. Um, we can't do it each individual person at a time. We have to find the wherewithal, the strength within us to say, we're all in one big Peloton. Here's the thing, you know, I talk about like being in whose Peloton. If we're on this planet, we're all we're all in the same peloton, whether we like it or not. And we have to find a way to work together through this moment in time to create a better tomorrow. So if we're all in this peloton, I gotta ask this question then. So if we're all in this peloton together, what do you do about the guy who's not gonna take that lead, man? He's not gonna go up front and break that wind for us for a while. He's just gonna hang on our wheel. So part of it, so that's a good question. So you know, part of it is you know, one, one aspect that we're all riding together in the same Peloton. And then there's also smaller Pelotons. And so if you have someone in your own personal Peloton that is just sucking off your wheel and not sharing in the workload, sometimes you got to drop his ass. You know, that's the reality is that I think sometimes we have to let go of some things, beliefs, some people in our Peloton, old habits, you know, the whole addition through subtraction most, most of 2020 i've been taking away things that i don't think fuel me feed me so yeah so we're on this planet together riding in one big massive peloton but we all have our individual ones and if we don't have the right person and even through conversation like hey you ready to take your pull you ready to take your pull and they resist then sometimes you just got to put the hammer down and drop them let's go quit this sunday stroll right you bet. You got to find a hill and you just like, you got to take off. And that happens on every weekend ride out there because some people don't want to take a pull. Um, some people can't take a pull because they're 
they don't have the strength to do so, but some are just like not pulling their own weight, even when they can, and they're not contributing. And that's the type of person that I don't want to be riding with, um, whether it's on the bike or in this moment in time, because we all need to like, we all need to like sweat a little bit to get through this moment. And we need people who are committed to doing that. Yeah. You know, the type of rider that I was, man, is when I would get a chance to pull, buddy, I'm going to pull as best as I can, as long as I can. And then I would get spit out the back and then guys would pull me aside and be like, look, man, you don't need to just pull for a little bit. It's fine. I'm like, Oh, okay. That's fine. I like, cause then I would just get kicked out, man. I'd be, I'd be spent. Yeah, I learned, no. I learned, you know, I learned so much from cycling, man, because it's, uh, you know, it's not my, my favorite, but the, it's, it is about the group, man. And it is about, you about know, the, the group, it's about the camaraderie and then hanging out afterwards that, that you don't get anywhere else. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that, you know, on a Sunday, Saturday group ride, you know, one of the local rocket rides, you know, when we're in that group, we don't care about who we voted for, who we pray to, who we love, what we believe in. All we want in that moment is like, are you going to ride safely? Are you going to, are you going to carry your load? Are you going to take your pull? You're going to ride responsibly. Are you going to cause any harm to me? You're going to be a chucklehead, if you will. That's all we care about. Like we're out there, like embracing life out in nature. And we're just, we want to get a ride on. And I think there's some beautiful metaphors that we can pull from that into current day that, you know, we, we have so many things that we can we can use to divide us, but gosh, we have so much that we have in common that can bring us together. And we need more of that right now. Yeah. Michael, where can people uh, learn more about you and, and follow you? And I'll put the links on there, of course, but where'd you like them? Yeah. The best place is to just go to michaelobrienshift.com, S-H-I-F-T. And you can find a little bit more about the story, the pictures of the big SUV and you know, my blog and the pause, breathe and reflect shirt and all that jazz like that. So that's probably the best place to send me an email and then we can connect and, you know, do all the other connections like social and stuff like that if we wish to. That's awesome. Thanks so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate you, man. Uh, thanks for having, I just, you know, I'm, I'm honored to be part of your family, be part of your Peloton. I know you have a choice in who you bring on and you're, you've brought in so many wonderful guests and, I'm just, yeah, just grateful that I'm included in that. So thank you, Matt. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening to the Mental Toughness Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast. You can also check us out on Twitter at Dr. Rob Bell or visit our website at drrobbell.com.